0: This is the Early Link Podcast, I'm Rafael Otto. A.J. Chaudhry was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Human Services Policy in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Prior to that appointment in the Obama administration, Dr. Chaudhry was a senior fellow and director of the Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. He has led public policy research focused on child poverty, child well-being, and development, human service programs in the social safety net, and the early childhood care system for young children. AJ, welcome. Thank you.
1: Very happy to be here. Great to have you here in Portland. Great. Yeah. Yes.
0: Uh, You're also author of the book Cradle to Kindergarten, A New Plan to Combat Inequality. One of the descriptions of that book is that early care and education for many children in the U.S. is in crisis. Can you talk about that crisis?
1: Sure. So the basis of the crisis is that we don't have any infrastructure or supports that supports the development of young children. And we know from the science and we know from the research that it is the period in which the greatest growth in human development and brain development occurs. Um, and what we do have is really mostly what families are able to do on their own. And so what we what that means is that families who have the resources have been pouring more and more into their kids um, in the earliest years to get them ready for school, to get them to feel confident, um, to have all of the sort of skill levels. And what that's meant is there's been a, a pulling apart. A very small fraction, probably a quarter to a third, Get really enriched developmental services, birth to birth to five, and show up in kindergarten as further ahead than any generation of Americans before them. Mm-hmm. So they're mm-hmm. they they they're more they have greater capacity than their parents or their grandparents, in part because of these investments. So that's a proof of concept that that's something that could really just raise everyone's capacities. Except um, what we have in terms of public provision or supports for families who don't have those resources, because these are really expensive services things like high quality child care or preschool education you know costs upwards of about 10 to 15,000 a year across the country and higher in expensive places like portland per child per child like, yeah, per right. child mm-hmm. and so if you're to think about that if you would need to be making at least six figures to be able to do that for your families and i mean to do that for your child mm-hmm. and most families aren't earning that so this is and we really try to make the case that the crisis isn't just about low income families or families who are struggling at the at the very bottom or at the margins this is really a crisis that affects the middle class m- maybe as much or more so than low income families because the greatest the greatest l- growth in inequality has been among the most affluent families and the middle class—that's where the test score gains have been be, been stretching out. That's where um, kindergarten readiness has been shown to be diverging. So I really think that you know we are in a crisis because we have not never come to grips as a society with a few things. We haven't come to grips that where children are during the day in their first five years has changed dramatically across the United States. So families 50 years ago. Were primarily cared for by by one of their parents, their mother, um, and what they experienced was more common. Obviously, the quality of their homes and their home environment was different, but that's where kids were. After we had the great change in sort of both family structure and and the labor force, that almost all all family all children are born into families where both of their parents are working or plan to be working. Yes, means that. Families who have the resources have done is make sure that their kids are in really high quality, enriching environments that support their development. And other families have had to make do with what they could in a sort of pretty tattered infrastructure of resources. And it varies in every place that you go to. It's not even that we can say, oh, this is a crisis that looks the same in Portland as it does in Lincoln,
0: Nebraska. Sure, sure. And so, higher-income families obviously have those kinds of resources in place to provide those opportunities for kids. The middle class is struggling, but there are also supports in place, some supports in place for the lower-income families mm-hmm. that are below 200 percent of the federal poverty level. Um, subsidies, or in some cases, paying for childcare for those families. So, talk a little bit about what that strain looks like for the middle class and what some of these subsidy programs look like.
1: Sure. So what we do have are basically what we define as sort of three major sets of services. We have childcare subsidies, which generally go towards low-income working families in most states. It varies by state. Every state designs their own system for that. In Oregon, it actually goes particularly more concentrated to the le- lowest income families, so families below what's 100 percent of poverty or 125 percent of poverty. So we're talking about families who make less than 25 or 30 thousand dollars a year. Okay, and those are really the only ones that get much support. Okay, um, and then we have preschool education. So many states, but this varies again by state, create preschool education programs for their kids at either either starting at age four or starting at age three. We in the book, you know, say that it's way overdue for the U.S. to rethink its educational system so that pre-primary education is universal and starts at three for everyone and then the third and again in many states preschool education when it's when it's offered is universal but in some states like Oregon it's pretty much restricted to the lowest income families so the mm-hmm. same families who get most of the childcare benefits are the ones who also get most of the preschool benefits here and then the third program which was specifically designed with poor children's development in mind is the federal Head Start program right so the federal Head Start program has always had As its mission to raise the capacities of children who grow up in disadvantage so that they either do not start school too far behind or gives them a head start relative to everyone else. And again, that's become a bit outmoded in that now everyone else, and particularly those who can afford it, are in high-quality early childhood education, so it's far from a head start. Right. Um, right, And second, we know so much from the brain and developmental side. So that's the second thing. So not only has society changed, but what we know about early childhood brain development and skills formation among kids has been revolutionarily changed over the last 25 years, that we know that that period is when children develop um, their, their skills, both social emotionally, their ability to sort of concentrate, their ability to sort of cooperate, their ability to choose and prioritize and focus, their ability to relate to other people. And their cognitive ability. So we're really clear when we talk about skill development, we're not just talking about math and reading, though that's kind of where the crisis is, you know, is most evident because the, the gaps that have, have emerged between children who grow up in uh, well-to-do families and everyone else have stretched. To a crisis
0: point, we're seeing those those gaps academically, but we're we simultaneously not talking about having three and four year olds sitting in desks working on academic problems. It's right. a very different environment.
1: Yeah, it's a very different environment. So we 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 strongly support play based education for three and four year olds. We probably support it for kindergarten too. I, we worry that kindergarten's gone too much in an academic route because it's actually consistent with the way children learn. But what we do say, particularly in our preschool discussion, is that play-based education doesn't mean that it has to be devoid of verbal development and numeracy development. In fact, it should be really rich in those things. And there's ways to sort of be, provide more what we call curricula for math and reading that's, ba- that's based in play, right. um, where it, there's, there's an intentional focus on the part of the classroom instructor to sort of say, oh, you know, when we all share a pizza and we cut it up, we're dividing it, right, you know, right. um, and we're using that opportunities word. Right, right, in those right, activities. right. And, that, and there's a curricula that does that. That basically says, "Oh, you know, the next time you have pizza, do this." And and the teachers go through and are coached in that. And it's been found, particularly in one of the programs that my co-author evaluated, the Boston preschool program, to have la- to provide for larger gains in kids, particularly the most disadvantaged kids, relative to other preschool programs.
0: Now I know when we talk about early care and education. We're talking about a suite of different kinds of programs and services Preschool is part of that, Childcare is part of that I wanted to ask you a little bit more about childcare specifically I know that we have, there are uh, federal funds that flow down to the states The states are required to provide a match, a portion to get those federal dollars In Oregon, we get about $98 million per year from the federal government for child care subsidies Primarily for low-income families we match that with about $23 million. so we have about $121 million at play in child care subsidies. T- talk a little bit about the Oregon environment. Does that compare to other states? How is Oregon's investment in child care subsidies working today?
1: So all of the states are underfunded. Um, so the block grant is what that—it's called a block grant. It's a set, set amount of money, and you can do with it what you can, but it's not meant— to serve all kids who are eligible, and states set the rules on who's eligible. So Oregon sets its rules at 185 percent of federal poverty level. So, but even at that income level, most families who are eligible, you have to be working, and you have to have an income below 185. So, to, to so that people have a sense of what that is, that's about forty thousand dollars for a family of four. Forty between forty and forty five thousand dollars for a family of four. So we're right. talking about, you know, uh, a large amount of hardworking people who are sort of struggling near poverty. But Oregon only serves 17% of those who are eligible. So meaning you could be in that group and only one out of six kids gets those supports. I mm-hmm. mean, um, that's basically what the $121 million um, buys. So we're we're helping to th- sort of think through, well, what would it cost to do more? But even then, there's another issue in Oregon compared to the rest of the country is that Oregon has, even for families who are eligible and participate in the system, it has what to me is an outrageous copayment structure. So that, for example, a mom who makes, let's say, twenty eight thousand um, dollars and has two kids and wants to enroll her two-year-old in a high quality center that maybe she would never be able to afford on her income because it's you know thirteen or fourteen thousand dollars a year right the, what the subsidy would do is it would, it would say to her is if you're if you make that much money and you were to participate in this program your co-payment would be four hundred dollars a month you know instead of one uh, instead of $1000 a month if she was to try to buy it herself mm-hmm. well that's really generous and that's good you know it's basically saying the state's role under the subsidy system would be to pay that $600 but you know what the mom who's making just $2000 a month is not able to pay $400 for for childcare so almost 90% of mothers in that situation or eligible families in that situation Still don't even don't it. even come to the attention of the child care subsidy system because they know or they find out that that's what their copayment would be. Um, and it's really one of the worst copayment structures in the
0: country. Okay. Um, so that's okay. one
1: of the things that's, that we believe needs to be fixed.
0: Okay restructuring that, that, that restructuring that. And
1: then hopefully, hopefully there'll be increased federal spending over time, Mm -hmm. but also the state, the state could do more. So uh, you asked me, where does Oregon fit? I'd say Oregon spends what it gets from the federal government contributes what it's expected to maybe a little bit more than that, but not much more. And that's, I would say that's true of many states. I would probably say that Oregon reaches a smaller portion. In fact, it reaches, you know, by federal guidelines, which allow for a higher income eligibility. Oregon um, reaches 11% of families who would be eligible under the federal guidelines, while nationally the average is 15%. So we're talking about something where everywhere it's not good, but Oregon's is actually lower than that.
0: Can you talk a bit about what the impact on the workforce would be, and and working mothers, if yeah. if if Oregon could actually change the way it delivers the subsidy program, what does that mean for 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 working families? How would that change how people access or their ability to get into the workforce? Right.
1: So work and childcare interact, and they make they add to the stability or instability of one and the other. So when you when your child. It has arrangements that break. So that's the other part of it. Because we don't support arrangements, what families do and what families have to do is they have to do what they can afford – use arrangements that they can afford those arrangements may not always be stable or in high quality settings they might be with a neighbor or a friend or a relative who themselves have a change in their life and decide to do it so what children go through right now is modest to low quality but also a lot of turnover which also leads to moms leaving the workforce and not or not ever getting engaged in the workforce so we've actually anticipated that if you were to provide a full guarantee to all eligible families up to the federal guideline, that would actually mean more mothers would work. Mothers who are working would work more consistently and for longer hours. And it would increase the earnings of an income of families significantly, both because of the moms who have come into work, but also if you work stably and, um, and have that support, the amount of money you earn over time also increases. Um, we know that mothers pay a large penalty for having kids.
0: Right and that's right.
1: just fundamentally
0: unfair and it, it's still disproportionately impacting women who, right. who want to be right because women workforce. are the
1: ones whose labor force participation which is what you know nerds like me call it <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know declines um, right. upon having a kid and it also sometimes leads to sort of downward mobility in terms of earnings and economic participation, which is another reason that we've seen a revolution in America around childbearing. So families who can afford it, mothers who are really well-educated have delayed um, childbearing until later because they can establish a higher income level, and they often are married to partners who have good income levels. But for everyone else, there's less of a gain to waiting. and There's less of a clear path for making work and family work. So we've we've really created two Americans in so many ways.
0: When we think about these early childhood programs, uh, I just wanted to touch on how we differentiate preschool and childcare. And do you see, should investments be focused on one or the other or equally? How how, how do we think about choosing where to allocate our dollars?
1: This is actually one of the motivations for writing the book. So as as you mentioned, I was in the Obama administration. I helped to work on and support the development of proposals that would be going to Congress, but more importantly being articulated to the American people about where we should head on these issues. But most people who focus on this, because there's such a dearth in all aspects of this, it's a challenge to even figure out what you should do in one. So Mm -hmm. there's almost always a focus on one or the other. And in fact, among even advocates, there's like, one is seen as competing against the other. And we really try to make the case is that you have to think about this holistically. Right. And you have to think about what does one service primarily try to do that really, and how do you sort of merge that with other services that meet other goals? So when we, when we talk about preschool, we say that this is just a clear fact that all children are ready to learn By age three, they make huge progress if they're given high-quality environments, and it is a wasted opportunity, and it is a loss to the country in the long run to not develop that capacity, and that's really universal. Um, And we say that you know there needs to be that the, the same way that when America was the first place in the history of man. To create the idea of broad-based, universal, free education, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and we created that in the 1800s and 1900s. It put the U.S. ahead of everyone else economically. It made us, you know, win the industrial revolution, and it brought the American uh, America to preeminence. We had uh, we had a basic level of education that was widespread that was not true in the rest of the globe right. Um, right. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone copied that model. Everyone, especially after World War II, as Europe and other countries, but they went much further. They extended free public education. The U.S. created it for first or primary education, then added Mm -hmm. secondary education. But when other countries created their systems, they created public higher education. And most importantly, almost every country, every advanced developed country besides the U.S., starts primary education or pre-primary education at three. At the age of three. Yeah. Right. So And they have 100% participation. Mm-hmm. So that's what we see as sort of preschool. We see the role of childcare as supporting children's development and making sure that those are high-quality environments over a larger age span. So for kids birth to three, it becomes the primary support to mm-hmm. make sure that they're in high-quality environments. And then for kids three to five, it becomes the wraparound for working families that supports the rest of the day if if the preschool year is tied to those but you have to do both right. you can't have you can't have kids not have anything before age three or to have them have detrimental settings that are falling apart all the time and then make the most of the preschool education
0: and then you're trying to make up for it in preschool and then we, and, then, we, we and, and, and as it stands
1: now we're trying to make it up for it in k to 12 and we're just giving k to 12 a harder job right right, right. We're n- and we're not making the most of what is a pretty significant k to 12 investment so while we are near last in how much we spend before age five, we're in the top five on what we spend on kids between five and 17. Certainly that needs to be improved. And there's huge inequalities around that. Mm-hmm. But we're giving the school system a tough job. And almost all of the learning gap that we see for kids across the school system, almost all of that is there at age five. At age five. By the and time so they we're start basically, school. Yeah. So right. we're basically keeping kids in place between five and 17, but we're losing them by age five.
0: In earlier so early child investments are really a way to also improve the what we do in K twelve yes. the K twelve yeah. system yeah. in itself.
1: Yeah, I would I can't imagine being a kindergarten teacher where I, where if especially if you just got a cross section of the kids where the gaps between kids can be almost the equivalent of twelve to fifteen months of learning capacity by age five, right. and you're trying to teach somewhere in the middle, or you're basically saying, oh well, I got to hold the kids who are already ready. In place while I try to bring up the rest? Mm-hmm. or What do I do exactly? Mm-hmm. And what we've had is actually, that's actually hurt the education system. We create these things called gifted and talented programs. Well, these kids are really, every kid is gifted and talented, but the kids who get put in those programs are the ones who've had access, mm-hmm. right? So it's basically a way of sort of segregating or or because it's such a hard job to teach and you don't want to slow some kids learning down because they've had advantages while you teach others. We've We've tended to either segregate them or made the jobs of teachers impossible.
0: You want every child to be able to reach their potential. Yes, exactly. Right? And that's
1: that's really what cradle Little Kindergarten is about. Right. That if we want to do that, we need to invest in five. And that the fact that we don't do that kind of locks inequality in place – or even exacerbates it across generations.
0: I wanted to ask you about Elizabeth Warren's recent proposal for a a new child care program. This program is also a subsidy program, but it would impact a larger number of families. It it would reach well beyond 200% of the federal poverty level. It would create a a range of different copay schedules. Talk about her proposal and what that would what, what that would do for the child care environment in the U.S.?
1: We applaud Senator Warren, and it's really important that it is discussed in the sort of presidential context. Um, we had also worked um, and in helped inform another expansive vision for early childhood, the plan that um, Senator Patty Murray and Congress Congressman Bobby Scott had released in 2017 and has been re-released. Both of these are first time, you know, mm-hmm. the first time sort of a bold national vision and supports for child care. Both understand that the child care uh, dilemma extends well beyond uh, low-income families. It goes all the way up to, in the case of the Warren plan, up to 150% of state median income, which in Oregon would mean that every family up to $110,000 would get served Mm -hmm. under the under the Warren plan, everyone would get observed, um, and no, fa- and in both plans, nobody would pay more than seven percent of their family income towards childcare. Okay, that's a game changer. That is the infrastructure that we need. Like I said, it's even more expensive than what we had proposed. I think there's ways to sort of think about. So one is purely demand side, what we call demand side, in that it gives families the resources to purchase high quality education. Uh, the really great. Aspect of the of the of Senator um, Elizabeth Warren's plan is that she also includes what we call supply side, um, actually contracting similar to what we do in Head Start or, or creating grants to communities to build, to build programs that would serve all families. And again, as you said, would make it free to all families who make less than 200%. So that's around, you know, 50,000 or, or less among mm-hmm. uh, for a family of four. And then just expect everyone else above that to pay no more than 7% of their income. But it would would be eligible. So everyone in the whole country would be eligible for that.
0: Okay. And talk about if this kind of plan rolls out, there are going to be some infrastructure needs. There will be workforce needs. If, yes. if if more and more families are able to access childcare services, what does that look like? Well, that's that's going to be a challenge, right? Because, like I said, we start
1: from a dearth of services now. What exists has been mostly supported by what has been the. Effective demand of those who can afford it, and a little bit more from the subsidy system, but not enough to sort of reach. And we have, uh, we have a crisis of quality as well. We want to make sure that the settings, children gain when they're in high-quality settings. Children kind of stay in place when they're in average or mediocre settings. That's just what we've learned in preschool and in childcare as well. So that and the and the main thing that drives quality is the quality of the caregiver. Right. children learn, they don't learn because they have a workbook. They learn through the interaction they have with caring, nurturing, verbalizing adults um, and picking up um, what they learn from them. And to do that, you need a good, high quality, stable child care for preschool workforce, which is not what we have now. We, it's the one of the lo- these are one of the lowest paid jobs they have among the highest turnover, which means that when we invest in quality, we're investing investing in people who, because of the way it's structured, are bound to leave. And the best ones are bound to leave. Does the Warren plan address that to some degree? Uh, She does. Mm -hmm. Um, So she would provide sort of supports. She would, would, one, provide um, funding so that the quality of care is possible, right? So that we are paying enough that you would be able to hire a a high-quality workforce um, that would – Ideally end the instability in providers and make it so that providers get to pay the same amount as um, those in kindergarten, um, right. which is really what you need to sort of make sure. Because what happens now, it's a leaky bucket. You lose your best teachers, the ones you've invested the most in, very quickly because if they have an oppor- if they only make $30,000 and a kindergarten teacher in their state makes 55, that's what they need to do to both to stay afloat and to, and to have a path forward.
0: AJ, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. Please subscribe to our podcast. We've recently just been added to Spotify, and you can find us wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find episodes on our website at childinst.org.